Well, good morning. My name is Sam Kastensmith. I'm the head of school across the street, for those of you who don't know me. Um, this will be my fifth or sixth time preaching here, and every time it's been a real honor, so I'm always excited and thankful when I get the chance. Today we're going to be talking about the fall, which is probably, I guess it'd be the, mo- the heaviest discussion that you can have in the scriptures. Because when you think about anything that you are facing in your life, struggling marriage, finances, broken relationships, whatever it is that you're facing in your life, a lost loved one, someone who's battling a, a deadly terminal disease, everything, every pain, every heartache traces back to Genesis 3. When man says to God, I'd rather go it alone. So part of the discussion, part of our our time together in the Word of God this morning is intentionally meant to be heavy because the end, the punchline of the Word of God is such good news. It's like it's like a rubber band. The further and further and further you pull it back, when you let it go, the trajectory and the power on the other side of that pushes. And that's the power of the gospel. But to understand the grace of God, to truly grab hold of how powerful and valuable the gospel is, we have to understand just how hard and far we've fallen. Because that's how far our Savior goes to redeem us and then some. So I hope everybody in here had a good Christmas. I want to show you uh, our next slide. This is what my children did not receive for Christmas. <laughs> I really want a dog. Like, I have this great longing to have a dog. In fact, when I was first married to Laura, I lost points as a husband because when she said, what do you think about having kids? How long do we want to wait? I said, let's get a dog first. And then things ended up not working out, and five months into our marriage, she became pregnant with Caleb. We named him Caleb because we like the name of somebody who goes after the Lord's promises with all of their heart. And then we found out that in Hebrew, the name Caleb means dog. (laughs) So anyway, I, I put this up here to say I really would love one Christmas to surprise my son Caleb with a dog, with a puppy, because there's nothing that would give a father greater joy than to see their son light up in this little ball of life that's cute and fluffy and innocent and wonderful, running over and licking on his face and nibbling on his ear and doing all the crazy things that puppies do. And understanding that as a father, that desire to see my son beaming with joy... I want to tell you something. The scriptures tell us this. In Colossians it says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Next, we find Jesus in John 10 saying, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. 
You know, you've probably heard at some point in your life or of one of your friends kind of the cut down, oh, he thinks he's God's gift to women or something like that. You think you're God's gift to the world? Well, here's kind of the incredible news. That's an understatement. You are God's gift to his son. You are God's gift to his son. You are the creation that on Christmas morning, the father looks at his son and is so excited to see him beaming with joy at this new creation that was created to love him and to be in a perfect harmony and bliss and wonderment for all of eternity together. A bride and her bridegroom. What more could... Just wonderful, right? And this is what the son got. It wasn't the puppy on Christmas morning. It was this. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that with, with a heart that wants to give your son something that is going to bring him delight, after you give your son that cute puppy that comes out and licks on faces and nibbles on ears, a Christmas later, you come out and you find that your gift to your son has become vicious and nasty and he wants to compete for the things that he believes he owns in the house and this dog becomes rabid and viciously attacks your son. The son that you created, you brought this gift and gave it to your son is now the very gift that has turned on your son and seeks to maul him and hurt him and betray him. Even though he's done nothing but love that dog or that creation. Now I can tell you as a father, if a dog came to maul my son, what do you imagine I would do to that thing? If something came and tried to hurt my son Caleb, every ounce of fury welling up inside of me, I would not be able to stop from putting that dog down with the greatest amount of fury and wrath that I could. That is not the heart of our God. The heart of our God... He takes on flesh. He comes into the world. He knows that everything, every punishment, every judgment, every curse that is laid upon the shoulders of man in order to liberate them and to transform them into what they're supposed to be, he's going to have to endure that wrath because he's just and he's holy. And so Jesus comes and says something like this, knowing, and the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that the very next day he is going to be pummeled, crucified, beaten. And what does he say? Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Here you are, this gift that turns toxic and Jesus doesn't see you as you are. He sees you for what He knows you will become when He's done with you. Do you have any idea how valuable you are? Do you have any idea the lengths to which your Savior has gone to redeem you? It's mind-boggling. And like the song we just sang, there's a beautiful exchange that we're going to talk about. But first, 
We need to get into Genesis 3 and we need to talk about man's great betrayal because man is created to be with God and there's two commands. The first one comes in Genesis 1.28 and God comes and he gives them what we now call the cultural mandate and it says, and God blessed them together, man and woman, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and everything that moves on the ground. And right there, God is basically telling us what man and woman were created to do. You're created to go out and to have dominion and to subdue and to be kind of this king over the land. You're to, to have control. You're to multiply, fill the earth, family, relationship. That's what you're created to do. And God only gives one negative command. He says in Genesis 2, And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. So what happens? A serpent comes. A serpent comes, and though God is with them, they know the righteous character of God, the good character of God, But the serpent comes and says, you could have it all. You could be like God. And then pride took root in Eve. And she thought, wow, I could be like God. I could be one who says that there's no restrictions on me. I could write my own fate. I don't want to be under the lordship of God. So she reaches up and she takes the fruit. And she eats and she gives it to her husband. And he, rather than protecting his bride, eats. Now I want you to notice something. That in the cultural mandate, they were told to have dominion over everything that moves along the ground, all creatures. And here you find this terrible flip, as we're going to see in a minute. God created the world to be supreme over it. But then he says to the man, you go out and have dominion. And he creates a helpmate for the man, a wife, equal in dignity. And they together are to rule over the creation. And what happens here? You can kind of see it in the picture. Now all of a sudden the creation rules the woman who rules the man who turns his back on God. All of the created order is thrown upside down. And that's still the way of this world today. Romans says we worship and serve the created things. Our gadgets, our monies, our relationships, people, jobs, you name it. We worship and serve created things rather than the creator. That, the effects of the fall, where we put God in second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth place, is still going on today. So they take and they eat. And then Genesis 3-7 is a line that lays down the foundation for the rest of Genesis 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Now I don't want you to miss this important point. My wife pointed this out to me last night and I think she's incredibly brilliant. And Matt said I have to acknowledge it at least once. I can skip it second service. Just kidding. But what are they seeking? What is Eve? She goes to the tree. What is this tree? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she says, ooh, I want to be like God. I don't need Him anymore. I will be like God. And she eats of the fruit. And what is the first piece of knowledge that she gets? 
and they knew they were naked. When you go it alone in this life without the Lord, you find out real quick you're naked. You find out real quick just how vulnerable you are. And this is always an awkward verse because people think, how in the world could they just now realize they're naked? It's not like they ate from the tree and all of a sudden Adam went, now wait a minute, and realized he was naked or there was a breeze or nothing like that. Why do they realize they're naked? If you're in your shower at home, you don't feel naked. Why? Nobody's looking at you. Nobody's judging you. Nobody's eyes are scanning you. If you're naked at the corner of Federal and Broward Boulevard, you know you're naked. Why? Because everybody is looking at you and judging you and wondering, what in the world is wrong with that person? For the first time ever, get this, for the first time ever, Adam and Eve realized, somebody's watching me. The liberty of being free to live as you want, gone. And now all of a sudden, a holy God is looking at a filthy human being who has walked away from him and is forever blemished. And they know they don't belong there. And so they hide. And they try to cover themselves up. Now the effects of the fall are huge. My brother Dave worked, he's a nutritionist. Hold your jokes. But he's a nutritionist. And he said that when he went through all of his training, the hardest part that he ever had to do was to go into Shan's hospital and they have to go to all the different wards and wings of the hospital. He said the hardest thing he ever had to do was to go into a burn unit. And you look at people who have third degree burns, I mean the fire, the first things that go are the ears and the nose and the lips, all the fatty tissue, the fingers. And he says you'd go in there and these people would be in unbelievable agony They would be totally disfigured. You'd look at pictures of them on the night shelf right next to them, and then you would look at them as they stand before you, and you would go, wow, I don't even recognize you. And the fall is like that. I think at the fall, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a lot like this blazing, beautiful fire. And Adam and Eve, thinking that they could be like God, dove in. And when they came out, The image that God had given them that was made to be beautiful and pure and innocent was horribly disfigured. And it was still them. But they were barely recognizable. Now, in comparison to one another, a bunch of burn victims comparing beauty, we might not recognize how upside down we've become. But in comparison to the true unblemished image of God, which is pure and radiant and holy... We are grossly disfigured. Morally and spiritually, we are utterly self-absorbed. Self-protective. And that's our nature. By, By our flesh, that's our nature. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? They never had a concept. They never had a concept for what naked was. Why would you wear clothes? 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I've commanded you not to eat? And then Adam says, the woman you gave to me. Now watch this. The woman you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You hear this? It's the reversal. It's the woman saying the serpent is above me and I obeyed. And the the man looking at the woman and saying the woman is above me and I obeyed. And you, God, are to blame for all of this. It's incredibly bold for Adam and Eve to flip the created order. Rather than saying, I've messed up, they blame God. And so here you see the reversal of everything. And God then is going to come and He's going to bring judgment for the rebellion. And this is where the story gets beautiful. Because up to this point... It's all gross. Man saturated with evil. Peace, love, union with God. Happiness, bliss, provision, not having to work hard. Marriages that go easy, that aren't about self-protection and arguments and making sure that you're right. Children that would have obeyed. Jobs that are stress-free. And God comes with His judgments. And they're devastating. And they're beautiful, as we're going to see. So He looks, and first He points out the serpent. And He said, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go... And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now when you get into God's judgments for the fall, there's a very cool thing that happens. The serpent, the man, and the woman all have natural desires. And because of the fall, the main message that man sent to God at the fall was, I don't need you. And so God is going to come when he brings the judgments of the fall and he's going to say, really? Okay. Let me take away my grace and see how you fare. Try to do it alone. So he looks at the serpent whose greatest desire is what? It's power. It's the serpent who wars with the Lord for the throne of heaven, right? He seeks to be the highest. So what does God do to him? Tells him he's going to crawl the lowest for the rest of his life. And then he tells them, and you're going to eat the dust of the ground all the days of your life. Remember that. And then he says this, which is the first statement of the gospel. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this, he's saying there is going to come a seed of the woman, a man who is going to redeem, and he's going to look at the serpent who goes around the earth devouring dust, and he is going to stomp him. Now, I want you to follow me here for a moment, because in a few verses, he's going to tell Adam, you shall return to the dust. For dust you are, from dust you were taken, and to dust you shall go. Now put those two together. He tells Satan, you're going to go around the earth for the rest of your life devouring the dust. And Adam, Eve, you're going to return to the dust. 
It's as if God is saying that Satan is going to have this great banquet of death and he is going to devour you. But I'm going to send somebody, a seed of the woman who's going to put an end to this banquet, who's going to put an end to the tyranny of death. And he is going to, interestingly enough, he is going to die for you. He's going to be wounded and put an end to the tyranny of death. So then he turns to the woman. And to the woman he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Ladies, probably some amens out there, right? Really, truly, what is the woman's greatest longing? She's created to be a helpmate. Why? So Adam can fulfill this idea of being fruitful and multiplying and having dominion over the earth and being productive with life. And all of a sudden, the woman's greatest longings, which center around relationship and love, are frustrated. You want children? You're going to have to suffer for it. You're going to love your husband like crazy and he's going to treat you like garbage. He's going to rule over you. He is going to take your love, your emotions, and He's going to trample them into the ground. And you know what message He's ultimately going to give Eve? That will not save you. Your children, your husband, your desperate desire to be right with them, to love them, to be in harmony, is a very, very good thing. But it's not going to save you. It's not enough. You need Him. So here's this great pain in childbirth. Here's a husband that is going to rule over you. And then he looks at the man and he gives the most extensive, longest judgment upon the man, as he rightly should have. Because it's the man who drops the ball here. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten from the tree which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return from the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Men, this is your curse. You are going to pursue greatness. You're going to want to subdue things. You're going to want to have dominion. You're going to want to grow in power and prestige. You're going to want to be productive. You're going to want to go out and you're going to want to earn an income and you're going to want to provide. And you're going to want to do all these things, but the creation itself is going to rebel against you. What is Adam's great desire? It's to be productive. It's to be respected. And what's going to happen? The very same thing that he has done to God, God is going to make the creation do to him. The creation itself is going to rebel against you. It's going to yield thorns. It's going to be hard for you to produce anything. You're going to have to sweat like crazy. Remember how it used to be before the fall when you would just go out and labor delightfully and everything worked right with you and you produced amazing things? Done. Now you're going to have to feel the stress of a job and a career and providing and wondering if you're doing a good enough job. Oh, and by the way, your relationship with your wife 
every instinct in you is going to be not to communicate, to always be right. You're going to fight nonstop. Oh, and by the way, all the labor that you're doing to build up this great stockpile on earth, you can't take it with you. What's the, I think, I forget who sang the song, but you've never seen a hearse with a luggage rack? It's true. You will not take it with you. And only if you're investing your life in Christ do you have a hope of finding eternal significance in your suffering. That's it. Otherwise, it's all wasted. Genesis 3 is debilitating. It levels man, and you see the truth of it in your daily life. You see your nature to want to hide because you have so many... If everybody in here took their worst secret and it was thrown up onto that screen, there would be nobody in church next week. Everybody has secrets that they think, man, if, if everybody else knew about this, I'd be ruined. And so we hide and we're ashamed and we feel naked and we're cursed and we feel this, this insecurity and we see our relationships go upside down. We see our marriages go upside down. We feel the stress of providing and it's on top of us. And God lays these curses down upon the shoulders of men. And I love what Adam says next. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now Eve's name, literally in Hebrew, comes from a very close word that means life bearer or life living. Listen to what God has just said to them. Everything for you is going to be bad. You're all going to die. You're all going to have misery. You're all going to have suffering in the ways that you want the world to work with you most. If Eve should have named, if Adam should have named Eve anything, it should have been the mother of the dying. But he has faith in the promise of Genesis 3.15. That God is going to send someone to put an end to that. So by faith, Adam names his wife Eve the mother of all living. So let's, let's look at it. This is the cost of man's sin. Nakedness. Insecurity. However you want to say that. Vulnerability. Shame. Fear. Birth pains. Thorns. Hard labor. Unrequited love. Rebellious creation. Sweat for death. The sweat for bread, the curse of death, the feast, you will become a feast for the wicked one and you will be separated from God, which we'll see in a minute. Add to that disease and selfishness and fight. I mean, you go, the list goes on. Genesis 3 is devastating. It's utterly devastating. So I want to talk about God's mercy in the midst of the judgment because this story as ugly and as awful as it is, becomes really beautiful when you see it through the upside-down prism of the gospel. It's beautiful. Man, I love our Savior. But first, things get a little more ugly. You have the Lord who sees His fallen creation, and they're awful, but He does something before He expels them from the garden and says, you can't be with me anymore. He made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. 
Now I want you to pause there for a moment because Adam and Eve's first reaction is to go and to grab fig leaves and to hide and to put them over them and to hide from the Lord and to feel ashamed and embarrassed. I can't dwell with you, so I'm going to hide. And God doesn't come and say, no, 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 take those off. It's okay. He teaches them something. You need a covering. But fig leaves aren't enough. So I'm going to have to take a living animal and I'm going to have to slay that animal. And by the bloodshed, you'll receive a covering. You hear that? And then, once God takes this tender moment, because we, we tend to think of God at this moment to be like, oh, they've done it, get out! But He stops. And He closes them. And He's merciful and tender. And then He explains why he expels man from the garden. And it is incredibly merciful. It says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he... He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. And you're asking, Sam, how is that merciful? If God had never driven them out of the Garden of Eden, and Adam had eaten of the tree of life, he would forever remain in a state of fallen misery. But this teaches us something about our God. Did God, did Jesus have to come and die for you to live forever? No. He could have left the garden open. And you could have gone and eaten from the tree of life. And in your fallen, miserable, self-protective, selfish, self-centered, prideful, arrogance and weakness and misery, you would have existed forever. God will not have that for you. God's not, this is kind of a, a, a realization from this text, God is not all that interested in you as you are living forever. God is interested in you as you will become in Him living forever. You will be made glorious. That's what God is looking forward to. That's what would make God say, hey, rather than them eating from the tree or us totally annihilating man, that, what I know they will become in Christ, that's worth the death of my son. So put them out. Station a cherubim there, guarding all the ways to the tree of life. And that mention of the cherubim is incredibly important and you're going to see why here in a minute the cherubim in scripture are always the guardians of god's holiness they always are so you see them everywhere that man is not supposed to go like if you go beyond this point you can't dwell with the holiness of god you cannot live there so god puts cherubim on the tabernacle veil he instructs moses to stitch them into the tabernacle veil and this four inch curtain 
hangs before the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God, and man is not allowed any further. So just like the cherubim at the edge of the Garden of Eden, man can come no further. Here at the tabernacle veil, you have these cherubim announcing like the garden, man can come no further. When they build the temple, they stitch the cherubim in the temple veil. When they build the Ark of the Covenant, what's on top of it? The cherubim. You may not touch this or you'll die. When they build the temple doors, cherubim, you cannot go beyond this point or you will die. The cherubim are always the guardians of God's holiness. Seven times in scripture it describes him as the God enthroned between the cherubim. So now we get to my favorite part of this whole sermon. The beautiful part. And it's where Christ is going to come in. And he's going to overthrow the fall. And my hope is that when you read the gospel from here on out, we sang that song, Beautiful Exchange. It's not just righteousness and sin that gets exchanged. Jesus is going to take it all. All of your misery, all of your curses, what you're sitting in this sanctuary this morning thinking, my God, where are you? This life is too hard. This curse, this judgment that you've put on my shoulders, it's too debilitating. Jesus has taken every single curse and judgment in a very, very deliberate way and He wears them for you. Starting with a scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what do we see here? Before we go there, Galatians 3 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus knows that scripture. And yet he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want to tell you another story. I love this. It's beautiful. Here you find God in a garden again. And what happens to him? He's betrayed in a garden again. And you have Judas who comes up and gives him a kiss on the cheek. And he's betraying him again. Man is betraying God in a garden again. The first time this happened in a garden, God said, here are your judgments. Go. This time, when God is betrayed in the garden, He's going to say, those are your judgments. I'll take them. I've had eternal union with God. I'll be separated for you. So remember all the curses that were given to Adam and Eve? Let's walk through them. The sweat of terrified agony, right? Remember, Adam is cursed that he's going to sweat. Well, Jesus is going to take sweat and he's going to take it to a heightened level. He's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Lord, I do not want to drink this cup of wrath. I do not want to face the fury of all the wrath that you have stored up for mankind's sin, but not my will. Yours be done. And as he is dealing with that dreadful moment, we're told that he began to sweat like drops of blood. His capillaries or whatever were bursting in his head. He was so stressed out 
and he began to sweat like drops of blood. You think you've endured the curse of sweat? He's endured it greater. Or the pains of hard labor? He's endured them greater. Or laboring for your bread? And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said to them, This is my body given for you. Or nakedness and thorns. We have a Savior who has been stripped righteous, who has been stripped naked and forced to endure shame. Thorns. We have a Savior who has taken your curse and made it his crown. Heightened birth pains. Think of the awkward conversation between him and Nicodemus where he says, if any man wants to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. Who do you think bears the pain to make that happen? On the cross, Jesus is having the moment of greatest child birthing pain anyone will ever see. Unrequited love, having a spouse that rules over you though you're desperate to love on them. Jesus knows all too well about that. He comes and says, man, how I've longed to gather you, but you were not willing. He knows the pain of having a bride who says no. And becoming a feast for the wicked. Here before us today, we have communion. Just as man is going to become the dust that the the serpent will feed upon, Jesus comes into the world and says no. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And Jesus becomes a feast for evil ones. Separation from God. He knows all about that. At the ninth hour, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what it's like to see God turn his face away. Death. He's going to know that too. God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you take every single curse that is laid upon the shoulders of Adam and Eve and Christ says, mine. You have liberty. And then in the great triumphant moment when Jesus dies upon the cross, what happens? That temple veil is torn and this is what I want you to see because He takes the beautiful picture of Eden and through the ugly picture of the cross, He does amazing things. Remember what was stitched on the temple veil? Cherubim. What were the cherubim for? To say you cannot come into the presence of God. And when Jesus dies upon that cross, those cherubim are sent away. You now have access into the presence of God. You now have restored access back into your Edenic paradise. Why? Because Jesus hung on a tree of death so that you could go then partake of it as your tree of life. And you look at the curses. He took nakedness so that you could be clothed in His righteousness. He took your shame so that you could come boldly to the throne of God. He took your fear so that you would never have to fear. He took your birth pains so that you could have life eternal. He took your thorns. He took your crown of thorns so that you could have a crown of righteousness. 
He took your hard labor and gave you a free gift. He took your unrequited love and gave you the security of a love that will never, ever fail you. He took your rebellion and closed you as the perfect subjects and servants of a God who sees you as sons. He took your curse of sweat and he sweat drops of blood so you could have liberty. He took your curse of death so you could have life. He took your feast. You were supposed to be the feast and he gives himself as the feast. And he takes your separation from God so that you will have a God who can promise you that he will never ever leave or forsake you. And he goes through all the curses of the fall to teach you this. When you say no to the Lord, your first bit of knowledge is that you are naked. You're, you're defenseless. You're vulnerable. You have no hope. All those curses climb on your back and there is no way to get rid of them. There's no redemption for them. But in Christ, we have a Savior who comes and snatches them off of your back and He carries them and He defeats them. He cares for you immensely. He's not a God who just delivers judgments and walks away and says, deal with it. He's a God who gives the judgments out of mercy saying, I want you to see You cannot walk alone. You need me. And then he takes the judgments from you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I I love you so much. You're such a good God that you would look at us as, as much as we have messed this world up and as much as we have trampled all over your creation. And you would look at us and want us and chase after us even though we have turned away from you and we have rebelled and we have warred for your throne and we do not want to submit to your lordship, you will not let us go. You want the gift the Father has given to you and you have paid every cost to make that a reality. Help us to find comfort and liberty in knowing that all of our sufferings, all of our judgments, all of our pains... We can lay them upon the cross. That is why you came, so that we could find liberty for our souls and peace from all the things that ail us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.